Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here on today's episode. Josie is solo hosting and she's talking to the author of the new book, Suburban Socialism, Ollie DeRose. Before we get that, a reminder, you can support us on patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get uh, lots of goodies like uh, the last three weeks. Obviously, we've done the work in progress shows for Josie's upcoming Edinburgh show. So... Thanks to everyone who supported us and joined in on those. You get extended episodes of Book Shambles each and every week and lots of other goodies as well as we've started now working on a couple of documentary projects. You'll get to see behind the scenes of those as we are making them over the next few months. And if you can't support us on Patreon, that's okay. Make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out as well and share it on social media and all that other stuff. And we're going to be on tour soon with Robin, uh, supporting the launch of his new book, Bibliomaniac. You can find all the current dates, and we'll be adding more soon on cosmicshambles.com slash bibliomaniac. And uh, the Cosmic Shambles shop is now taking pre-orders for Robin's new book as well, where you'll get exclusive signed art cards, which you won't be able to get anywhere else except through the Shambles shop. So go and check that out at cosmicshambles.com slash shop. But enough from me. Let's get on to today's episode. Here is Josie and Ollie. So, well, hello. Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Just Josie flying solo. Um, and I'm here with Ollie DeRose, um, whose book Suburban Socialism, brackets or barbarism, I have absolutely loved. And I've been so excited to meet you and talk about it. Um, so I, I have so many things I want to talk to you about from it. And um, quite often I like we like to ask people about books they've read and what they're interested in. And I hope we get to that. But at the same time, I found your book so exciting, partly because I think I'm from a similar sort of background to you insofar as I went to grammar school in, and I'm from a deeply small C and large C conservative suburb. Similarly, I, I it really sort of saddened me to read that like, because I'm, I'm from Orpington and the only time mm. in my life where the Tories were nearly unseated. Now, bear in mind, actually, it only turned Tory in 1979, but the only time in my lifetime when they were nearly unseated was in 1997. And, and yeah. I, on the front of the Lib Dem hoarding, they wrote this really sad note that was like, we really tried our very best. We're <laughs> so sorry, everyone. And I will never remember, I'll never forget walking past it on the way to school and being like, oh. But I I, um, I really firstly enjoyed reading about that part of society and its politics, because I feel like my entire life, I, and similarly, I'm somebody who I think as a socialist, I've uh, somebody who's like become a socialist as an adult and right. becoming more and more so the older I get. Like I joke that like I want to be a communist, but there's no one doing the reading. Like <laughs> it's too much. I'm, it's too dry and it's long, you know. But um, I I am absolutely um somebody who's when I read about class struggle, when I read about what it means to be working class, when I try and just understand my own class background. I felt like the suburbs confuse me too much, you know, mm. where I'm from doesn't have a long-term connection to an industry in the same way. It doesn't have kind of folk songs or, you know, even well-documented social history. A lot of that has been deliberately, uh, as the phrase is, memory hold. And so to read about kind of you investigating these things was really important like how did you come to write the book like what what brought you to it um to so uh, yeah to explain to the readers I suppose sure um that's really kind of me to say and uh yeah thank you so much for having me on um I'm a big fan this is great um and um yeah I mean it's great that you have this kind of similar um perspective and background so yeah I I grew up in a place called Brentwood um which is in Essex, mm. uh, people know Essex it. and Kent, they're absolute triumphs of Thatcherism. I know, yeah, this idea of like individualised aspiration is mm. so, so strong. Um, I mean, I grew up in a conservative household uh, for that, you know, 
and that kind of ideology I was brought up with. It's funny you should say, um, I'm already derailing, but it's funny you should say that um, you've kind of got more left wing as you get older. Mm. Um, and maybe I should have left this confession to later, but I used to be quite conservative. I oh, I love it in your book yeah. when you talk about yourself as a tiny teen Tory debater. Yeah, and you're like, I don't know why people got annoyed when I was just debating and having <laughs> fun. Literally the worst kind, like so insufferable. Like, you know, that, that kid in class is like, oh, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. And oh. it's like, oh, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's like a thought of shame when I look back. And it's, um, I'd love to blame it all on my background. I mean, I sometimes do, but you know, it, it's funny because it connects to the answer, which is when I um, was at the election count in 2019, um, and this Tory councillor came up to me and said, you know, um, socialism will never work here, and you'll understand when you get older. And ah! I know, it's so patronising, right? And what's so funny is that I, as I've got older. <laughs> I've got more left wing. Like I used to be a bit conservative. Well, actually, I used to be very conservative, and then kind of like experimented like, with like being a bit of a liberal for a while, and mm -hmm. then like quickly descended into the pit of like, communism. <laughs> and like, there's no turning back. And um, oh, I loved what you said about that about how people assume that you're going to shift to the centre. Mm -hmm. And it's like what you said is like no, it's actually been a real effort and a continued effort to to you know, yeah. to really learn about politics and to participate in politics. And I'm, I can't go back because it's, yeah. it, it, it's so real, you know? Exactly. It's not like a fad. It's not like a choice, like a fashion statement you're making. Like it's a, it's a response to like increasingly uninhabitable and like alienating conditions. Mm -hmm. But this is it. And, and what I found so interesting about you addressing the, the suburbs is the fact that it's being you know, this new history is being written of how the demographics of the suburbs are changing because material conditions are changing so drastically that even these sort of leafy, affluent, former Tory enclaves, they're not, they can't possibly stay that way because the dream is a lie, you know? Exactly, exactly. It's like deeply paradoxical. It's self-contradictory. Um, as you say, like, this dream is a complete lie. And, like, what was annoying about when this Tory councillor said... Um, you know, you'll understand when you get older or that, you know, socialism will never win here. He's kind of like just drawing on parts of the left's own resignation itself to the suburbs. As you say, like the suburbs don't really have this intuitive connection to like the labor movement um, in similar ways like metropolitan centers do, or you hear about youth quakes and massive protests in city centers. You don't really see this in the suburbs. Um, and that was what was annoying because we'd kind of given him this legitimacy to say this to us. You know, we'd spent most of our time campaigning elsewhere in places we thought we'd win. Well, this yeah. is it. That's exactly it. It's, it. That's what's so wonderful about reading your book is is you thinking in long t in long term terms mm. yeah. about bringing about radical change and not deciding that it's not possible in advance and not being frightened of the idea that what we need is radical change. Oh, that's nice. A lot of people just say like naivety. <laughs> so I, it's, it's nice to hear kind of like, yeah, hopeful and, and, and long term, as you say, you know, the Labour Party at the moment isn't the best vehicle for that. Um, yeah. It is one vehicle. Obviously, we should, I think that politics is an ensemble. We should be fighting on multiple fronts, etc. But yeah, it's, it's a longer term project. Like, we're not going to have suburban socialism in 2024. <laughs> True. Um, but also, like, uh, uh, this is something I mentioned. I was just interviewing Alan, Alan Lane, who runs Slunglow Theatre. I don't know if you are aware of him and his work, but it, it, it's the fact that, like, you know, there are these things, like, I think a lot about Preston Council and the right, Preston exactly. model of, of people where they're like, okay, well, we will be here in the long term at the <laughs> grassroots level, but we will be operating. Um, my friend Nikesh has a phrase, which is, um, maximum ambition, zero expectation, you know, <laughs> I, you know, this idea that like, right, we're going to keep going and we're going to act as if we are already in the better, the first days of a better world. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, uh, maybe that's actually probably wrong to say that we're not going to have suburban socialism tomorrow because actually there are forms of suburbs already that we don't recognise or you know, things like mutual aid, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's not a, an electoral victory but it's forms of like socialism, forms of solidarity that people do every day. Mm -hmm. um, even reading groups, even right, people exactly. realizing that they, realizing that they have that politics and daring to have those conversations in public, you know. Uh, any sort of 
ambition on the left is treated as naive. Yeah. But it's an interesting one. Here's the question, because we sort of live in the kind of times where incrementalism is sort of not enough. Like we, you know, the climate crisis, the inequality around us, like the fact that there are people who are like starving and fucking desperate. The fact that, you know, heating bills have more than doubled and are gonna go, have, will have more than doubled by the end of the year. Um, like, how do we cope with the fact that on one hand, like all we can do is like plant long-term seeds and work with a, with a view to sort of in 20 years building, building. Yeah. And the fact that actually what's really would be important would be a massive sweeping change tomorrow. And, and like, you know, and also I suppose that incrementalism is something that the centrists believe is the only way right. and is kind of super annoying. So like, what are your thoughts on that kind of thing? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's, it's funny first you mentioned naivety because yeah, I think this book was an attempt to kind of embrace naivety mm. and to say like, what would it mean to turn certain defeat into radical victory and especially across these terrains that we don't usually think of as um potential for, for left-wing victory mm. but that's kind of like the context of the book and it's yeah th th there's almost this um dichotomy that i think people in the middle try to try to deconstruct which is we either have a revolution tomorrow um or we have like basically really 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 moderate and incremental change but really like it kind of ignores that we can make radical change in our everyday lives, in everyday politics. So, um, as I said, something like mutual aid is a radical act. It's like a display of, um, as I said, solidarity and to say, the systems that exist currently aren't working for us. We need a radically new system based on compassion and kindness. And it, it, you say that, you know, the increasing cost of living, et cetera, compromise just doesn't really get us anywhere. Like moderate change doesn't get us anywhere. With, with the climate crisis, what good will uh, net zero by 2050 get us? Mm -hmm. Like half the world will be underwater by then. People mm -hmm. are already suffering. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the cost of the crisis now, what good will just like some minor tax changes do? Mm -hmm. um, people are facing exploitation every day. Um, and it kind of just annoys me when a lot of people who are called, they call themselves pragmatists, they call us, you know, they say, they, they call utopianists, you're not really going to get anything done. So actually, you're the ones keeping people in misery. Like that's what people said to us. Oh, I hate it. Right? Yeah. Like, but you're endorsing a system that is dependent on exploitation and inequality mm -hmm. every day. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, like the left can make alliances and compromises or, or coalitions, sorry. But like, who are you making coalitions with? Not the Lib Dems. <laughs> like, oh, like, I loved Yeah. I really was so grateful. This is the thing I was grateful for in your book. It was so nice to read the thorough um, explanations and takedowns you had of, you know, like the Progressive Alliance and the absolute scam that was best for Britain and, and what a Progressive Alliance actually means, you know, if you are going after the Lib Dems and sort of saying that people, you know, tactical voting Mm -hmm. shouldn't really be the goal like tactical voting yeah. is a is a neoliberal cop-out and I was like thank you <laughs> oh, thank you yeah I, I uh I loved writing about tactical voting and like because it was so annoying during mm -hmm. the campaign like I understand people's uh logic when they come to me and they say we want to get the Tories out mm -hmm. um and we have a first past the post system so like what should I do mm -hmm. like you know why can't you just work together and it's like it just ignores the fact that we have political differences for a reason, like even within the Labour Party. Like I said, yeah. there's these arbitrary boundaries that people like to put around a collection of views. And in 2019, it was basically about Brexit. So everybody who was anti-Brexit was, quote, progressive. Everybody who voted for Brexit was uh, conservative, kind of thing, in that kind of progressive conservative distinction. And it just really ignores um, that the division isn't between really progressive and conservative. It's between Labour and capital. And um, that's what was so annoying about tactical voting because, so I see the Lib Dems just lied. <laughs> it's just oh, like, so like, oh, much. Second, we're the uh, only people that can contend the Tories. Like, no, you're not. Um, like, that's just a complete lie. Um, and secondly, yeah, it, it kind of tactical voting just reinforces um, itself. So you say like this person's a tactical choice, then people will vote for that choice. Completely 
um, preventing any form of kind of like radical mobilization of this disenfranchised group that doesn't know how what they're going to vote for. But this is, I think, this is why also I, I found your book really exciting because you're not really talking about winning elections. You're mm. talking about engaging people politically and changing how politics is felt and experienced in the suburbs. And that's what I think I, beyond, I mean, my dad was involved in the church and mm. we did a lot of dropping off leaflets, dropping food around, you know, like com community stuff. But I never had any idea that there could be kind of a politics which was like part of everyday life and which served the community and which, you know, where, like, well, what I'm trying to say is that I had no idea that socialism could exist, I suppose, is what I'm trying right. to say. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly, because it's not really about, like, abandoning the electoral sphere, but it's about saying that firstly, we'll never win inside it unless we engage with stuff outside the electoral sphere. Mm. And secondly, yeah, like, politics is not just electoral politics. And I think that's the only thing that can kind of give people on the left a little bit of hope and like not to be so nihilistic about the state of politics as it, as it is at the moment. As you say, like the church is a great example of people getting involved in that. And um, I, I, make this, I met this um, elderly couple called John and Doreen and, you know, they voted for Clement Attlee uh, in 1945. And then John was turning 99 on election day in 2019. And he voted and he was going to vote for Corbyn. Wow. And like, well, I only bring that up because they were talking about like in the NHS and that kind of like um, how that was the big achievement of the Labour government. And, you know, the NHS didn't just like arise out of nowhere. Um, it wasn't really like created by the Labour Party. It was a result of experiments within mm. mining towns in South mm -hmm. Wales where people came together, workers came together and said, how can we kind of uh, provide um, a collective form of health care mm -hmm. that can compete with or like kind of erode private health care? And it really worked. And another part of that I think that's really important to acknowledge is workers' libraries, workers' right. education groups. Mm. You know, people really, really sought to educate themselves and each other, to sort of establish and foster a left-wing culture, you know. And I think that is part of it too. And I think that's something that obviously has been very successfully taken away you know like mm. if you're in a grammar school you are in a, con a conservative factory you know yeah. <laughs> like they are telling you like i remember at my school they used to say newstead girls don't become secretaries they have secretaries oh, you know they weren't yeah. telling us well perhaps we could think about how we could serve or optimize society you know <laughs> it's not how it is yeah, and, yeah. I, and i think like what i think I, I, like my generation, like I'm 40 now, but what I think the past 10 years, 15 years has been really an education in for me is like understanding and learning about community and community building, trying to sort of find a way to even like emulate what people did a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I, I tell you something that I think you might find fun is that near me on the South side of Glasgow, some brilliant radical parents, um, have set up a socialist Sunday school, which is socialist Sunday schools, I'm sure you know, were like all over the country a hundred years ago. You know, it was set up to give um, a non-religious educating space to young people and to give them like lovely day trips and fun and to sort of provide things for them too. But it was also set up kind of as a way of disseminating political values in a way that I think is really cool. And uh, if anyone's listening is like, that's indoctrinating kids, I would urge you to see whether or not your children are being indoctrinated to capitalism yeah. every day. Um, but yeah, basically, um, I see people trying to, in their own ways, build institutions and create examples that aren't simply, let's all canvas, oh, we lost. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny you mentioned school because um, one thing I think is really important is these like neoliberal career guidance counsellors that like basically tell you um, you mm -hmm. can only kind of you should go into finance or you should go into these like, vocational careers and like mm -hmm. rather than kind of exploring other more meaningful forms of work um, and also areas that like the left are powerful in. So one thing that the left mm -hmm. can do outside the electoral sphere is 
and this gets into the kind of brainwashing stuff like i know this look seems like brainwashing but whatever i don't really care it's like how can we tell students what areas of um what industries have kind of like potential for left-wing power like in teaching for example and like what could also can be a really rewarding um sphere and it's, it's yeah more widely it's as you say if we are disempowered in the electoral sphere what things can we do outside of it and how can we exercise forms of collective creativity because that's what i think you're explaining mm. with the sunday school right it's yeah collective creativity and um uh what's the word like ambition in terms of just like joy like yeah, exactly. ambition in terms of what would we like mm -hmm. do you know what's funny in terms of when you i remember my experience of um careers counseling at school and i said i wanted to be a comedian and basically they were like work on a plan b <laughs> and that was my whole thing and and it's it's not even just siphoning you away from stuff that might be useful for society or even it's not even not up for helping you to change the society we live in in a left-wing way it's not even telling you not to be useful it's also saying don't have fun either exactly like, don't let yourself yeah. imagine that you could break the rules yeah don't like let yourself joy is like a, apparently a uh not something worth pursuing mm. um, that the left have you know when the left when left people go and protest and people see them smiling it's like oh you're having fun like it's yeah, not they like this yeah it's exactly like, oh would that be the worst thing in the world like expressing solidarity is like actually like quite an enjoyable thing to do and it's like it's david graeber has a quite great quote and he says play is the ultimate expression of freedom for its own sake yes. and it's like we think of like playing and joy and freedom is like a very childish thing to do and it's like how can we kind of like reawaken that desire in all of us that we all have um and capitalism grinds that down like i met loads of children at my uh, primary school in the campaign and this young girl which literally asked me after I explained like why I think capitalism or I didn't really use those terms like why the world sucks she just said like why don't we share everything mm. and I was like that's such a powerful exposition of like socialism and also it shows like kids have an intuitive desire for something like socialism oh truly like, we teach people to be kind we teach kids to, to to share all this stuff and then what happens when we grow up get older and we want to build a society that's built on these values we're like oh mm -hmm. That's naive. Well, well I, I was so shocked as well, like being brought up as a Christian, just sort of as I came into adulthood, being like, I cannot cope with this disconnect between we should share, we should listen to the teachings of Christ, but also we should ignore them. Right. Like, <laughs> like it was just like I couldn't cope with it. I was like, but, but it, how, how is it? It's not Christian. You're like, David Cameron, how are you saying you're a fucking Christian? You're not a Christian. Like, all of that, <laughs> David Cameron, but you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think too, um, I, I, this is, was something that I read in the context of like Instagram self-help, but I think is political too, which is that you play is the opposite of survival mode. Mm. You know, if you, you can't be in a playful space if you are desperate. And that is obviously what capitalism wants to do to people is to make them, uh, you know, skint and struggling. Mm -hmm. So that of course people aren't going, hey, let's set up some sort of silly yeah. radical fun thing you know yeah it just keeps us busy as well like we're just working all the time so we have mm. no energy to like ex express community care or like leisure yeah um and that's like one of one of the things about four-day week is like i think the biggest example uh, case for four-day working week on the left is like it would give us more time <laughs> to organize and also yeah. to have fun like yeah. it's just and that's what people don't understand that people whenever you're just defending left-wing policies, everyone always asks, how will this make society more productive? How will this save us money? And it's like, a lot of the time it's like, actually, this will make our lives more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Like, surely that's good enough. I don't know. Why can't we have ambitions that are not to do with the market? Why can't we have ambitions that are not to do with just um, get making somebody rich like this? And, and I suppose, I think what we're fighting against, you know, and literally what your book is about is like, trying to throw off the conditioning of the past 40 years, you know? Yeah, it's like, when we talk about electability, as if it's just like this like strict, um, unmovable, immovable like set of conditions. But as you say, like the reason why certain things are deemed unelectable is because capitalism tells us that we can't live mm -hmm. without it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, again, why it's so important about outside the electoral sphere 
you know, you can resist capitalism, you can escape it, you can dismantle it. There's all these different ways of doing it. And it might not seem like you're, you are kind of changing the world, but you're, but you are every day forms of kindness and compassion, particularly in mutual aid. You know, you're showcasing why other systems built on care can actually work. And yes, I and, and I also think it's important to approach those things with that confidence and joy. Like I think about the in my area, there's this really wonderful community garden space and its very existence, you know, like you're saying, is an act of de defiance. And, you know, there are always people who want to police what is allowed, yeah. even to the extent of telling you while you're doing something that it can't be done, you know. And so I think the greatest thing in the world in terms of uh, like community or uh, activism, direct action is to be like, here we already are though. Mm -hmm. So your move, mate. I, I suppose what's exciting is thinking, do something, set something up and do it with this spirit of like, I'm already living in a better world. Mm. It's you who's being unrealistic because here I am. Yeah, that's so true. Like I just came back from a festival in Cornwall was called Kernel Transformed and like this oh, yeah. group of like um well group of people just set up this festival like a localized form of the world transformed yeah in this really rural area we're kind of similar to like what well, similar to suburban socialism where it's like these areas yes. are excluded from left thinking yes um and there there aren't these kind of pre-organized uh, pre-existing like networks but there are radical pockets <laughs> of left-wing activism and yes. they brought together this like amazing group of people just to like, you know, there were panels and like there were discussions, but there was also music um, and like alcohol. <laughs> like it's, it was about bringing together a group of people to have fun, mm. you know? Mm. And I think that's so important. Just like learning from each other's creativity is such a valuable thing in and of itself. Mm. Um, so I thought I'd just give them a shout out. Blog. But yeah. That's like, so good. <laughs> yeah. I, and I feel like anyone listening to this, it, it, it does sort of, it would be a good use of, of, time to just see where nearby you already exist because something will or who nearby you already is doing something because something somebody will be doing something even if you are deep in the suburbs i tell you what i'll never forget is i found a podcast called west kent radical history and it only had a couple of episodes and it's about 10 years ago and it was a guy and his friend talking about the absolute radical history of tunbridge wells and how Tunbridge Wells used to have an anarchist and a socialist newspaper that used to compete mm. with each other and how it was this hotbed of radical activity. And like, it really, really like instilled in me that every corner of Britain will have had people doing things, be it a hundred years ago, be it 40 years ago, at some point, even if it doesn't seem to have it now, there is a radical history of Britain that is not taught. Mm -hmm. and that you can unearth and take great confidence from absolutely yeah and i think it's i mean maybe i've been a little bit kind of like abstract a bit naive to just say like you know yeah generation left exists and we always will exist and like we can exercise power but it's to say that as you say like that these networks have been have formed yeah and it's to say that how can we make them more durable and how can we find identify where we have leverage already and how mm -hmm. can we then use that to the best advantage so you know, some people say like we need to put pressure on Keir Starmer to do this, this X, Y, and Z. But like, you know, and, and we should. But it's like he might also win without us. But like, he doesn't. He might not need us. So like, how can we exercise leverage in a way that has a bigger impact on the populations and demographics he does need? And so like one thing that young people could do is join a union. I know it sounds really simple, but you know, unions right now are quite uh, more populated by elder population. You know, young people. Yeah. I think it's less than. Uh, even five percent um, of unions are made up of like under twenty-five. So it's like wow. it's really it's really quite low. I mean, that might be a slight like a year old statistic, but young people generally aren't unionized. Um, and you know, we could say, okay, do we double down and just keep going forward with this like union approach, or do we kind of like like um, temper our demands and say maybe radical the radical left youth aren't that reliable? Or is there a third way to say like how can we get how can we be more strategic and creative in how we do mobilize young people? And that's one of the things I said about like career guidance. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's what areas are young people in at the moment, um, you know, teaching, hospitality, retail, and what kind of uh, industrial action can we take and make the most of this youthful energy that we do have mm -hmm. and not just being too naive and suggesting, yeah, and using abstract words like let's organize, let's do all this stuff, you know, let, let's be more specific in what we can actually do.
Mm-hmm. What sectors in your area have these networks um, and how can we expand them? I've got a really, there's a really cool book that I got sent via the Left Book Club, uh, which is called, oh, what's it called? Zero, it should be here, but I can't, of course it's the only one that's not here. Um, it's called Zero Hours, oh, stupid brain. Where is it? Oh, and it, well, it's about a group of organizers who were like, we, we don't want to separate ourselves from, it's about people sort of deliberately embedding themselves within, um, uh, Amazon warehouses right. uh, in order to organize right. and about people sort of seeing that as a way to really make sure that they were like being useful as left wingers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really cool. I- I'm going to have to find it and we'll drop it in, in this kind of like zero hours, this, <laughs> <laughs> but it was cool. Um, yeah, that is so interesting. And it's so cool to think about these things in practical terms and not in sort of emotional all or nothing terms mm-hmm. you know yeah. but, and i do feel heartened by the fact that like you said like if you do come to the position of kind of i don't even know like under like getting some class consciousness understanding socialism like seeing how the world operates somewhat yeah. it's not something you can abandon you can't suddenly be like i'm going to change teams like it's exactly. just not and also you know what it also lovely it does which is wonderful is burns bridges with the capitalists you know they don't want you to change teams so that's good too yeah, <laughs> absolutely that's so important because you talk about class consciousness and one of the things i try and do in the book is to say you know suburban capitalism um you know its effects are vastly unequally felt mm-hmm. but it does mm-hmm. deprive the vast majority of us of a collectively fulfilling life um and you know we, we use these terms working class middle yes. class and they are important but it's to say that uh, you know lots of people in the suburbs like to say oh i'm middle class to the point where like just every just kind of meaningless term yes and it's like you know what, what how can you go deeper into what that means to show yeah. you that actually like capitalism does deprive you of certain things that are really important yes. not to say, obviously you benefit from it as well in many ways it sometimes can be kind of paradoxical but how can we live a more collectively fulfilling life Yes. It's outside of capitalism. Well, oh, so much of that chimes with me. And what's interesting with the book is that, and why I really recommend it is because like, I've not been able to join up how it felt to experience a suburb- suburban childhood and adolescence and what it felt for my family to be there and, and for that to be how I grew up with what the wider politics of it is. You know, like one of the things that I always hated about where I'm from was that there are these enclaves of such vast private wealth, you know, mm-hmm. there are these people who live in mansions and they go to a private, you know, goal, um, country club and they have private schools, blah, 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 blah. Everything they have is the best of everything. And everyone around them in these suburbs has is varying levels of struggling mm-hmm. down to absolute deprivation of like the worst kinds, but it's like, it's been so successfully marketed that people feel as if they're not entitled to anything, that there never could be anything available and that that's the way of the world and that anyone who's kind of annoyed at it is somehow stupid and naive. And like then having you speak about it in just in more formal terms and, and with more of a wide, wider understanding is like, thank you. I wasn't going, you know, going crazy on my own. This is, this is how, what it does, you know? And, um, and I think as well with, with regards to kind of how people talk about class, because, you know, my own family within it, you know, within my parents, then my parents remarriages, then my siblings, my step siblings, and within an unequal education system, all of us had wildly different experiences of the class system, mm-hmm. what it might mean, what class you would put yourself in, mm-hmm. what aspirations we had, what we were able to purchase or not purchase, the educations we received. And I think that, yeah, like class terms are really important, but like you say, like actually it's to do with um, with kind of the fact that most people aren't the capital class. Right. Is that, right. I don't know if that's a dumb way of putting it, but like it, it's, it's also like to do with the success of the people in charge that Mm -hmm. people are sitting there going well you're middle class actually and you're this and it's like well none of us are going to the country club you know no you're completely right like exactly when you talk about suburban affluence like people like to think of the suburbs as affluent what they're really missing is that 
there is a difference between the people who create wealth in the suburbs, the workers, and then the people who hoard it. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, as you say, like class, I, I think is fundamental to how we understand like the world. But you're right, like it's not simple as just like everybody either um, sells their labor to survive or they profit off people's labor. Like mm -hmm. I think that's a really crucial position to start with and then say like sometimes it's not as neat as that and how do you like, fit people into this um and you know when we talk about class in the suburbs yeah because it's quite like a, quite a complex subject politicians just you know make up any old shit to then just kind of construct this this um construct class themselves so it's all working yes. class right it's just northern white you're a bit racist and you've got a regional accent that is what working class means to so many politicians and what that allows them to do is to say i'm on the side of workers when i'm racist i'm on the side of workers when i don't provide any uh, radical change yeah just lying and they're just like completely misdiagnosing what class is similar with the middle class as you say you say oh you're middle class or this area is really middle class so we, we can't really have too much uh, radical change um and it's middle class has almost become like ubiquitous like i use the example of the simpsons in the book where Homer Simpson is meant to be basically this middle-class person. He says, like, I'm lower, upper, middle-class. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, not a coincidence that the Simpsons, uh, like Springfield, is in every single state in the US to show that it's like this ubiquitous um, thing, like everybody's middle-class. And, yeah, that, that, that kind of um, construct just serves to obfuscate the material conditions in people's lives. Yes. Whether you're working class or middle-class and how those kind of boundaries are blurred sometimes. And that's okay. And we don't have to provide a distinct, like, precise definition of these terms. It, it, I find it paradoxical. Yeah, it's, it's not. I don't really want to get the tiny violin out for middle class people, right? I get that. And it's, it, but it's to say that if we take something like home ownership, like mortgage home ownership, any kind of radical campaign obviously needs to be rooted in the demands of renters, private renters, and mm -hmm. But it's all to say that, like, that you can connect those demands to certain demands of mortgaged home homeowners to say that mm -hmm. mortgage mortgage homeowners who are in debt or like a recession would literally like mean their home is repossessed um or that you know home ownership is massively inflexible that the the, the um, duration of the commute has drastically increased because people are changing jobs but they're not moving because mm -hmm. their house is their own their only investment right um and it's to say that kind of socialized housing would be better for all of us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. once we kind of obviously escape this stigmatized version of what it means to, to live in social housing and similar with like employment you know, everybody who works a nine to five job performing the same task in and out, um, like day in, day out, is is being deprived of the, the like a basic human need for creativity and collective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and do you know what? As well, this is this links in with, two, with about three things. Firstly, I think car culture and about mm. how in the suburbs car culture is such a thing. And it's such a again, like a conservative factory, you know what it does, atomizing people, antagonizing people, setting them against one another, um, how bad that is for the environment, how much it seems like Tina, like, well, how could we possibly change this? You know, um, and secondly, like, yeah, people bit commuting and how much that robs people of their lives. But um, also it reminds me of, you know, speaking with Alan Lane and the fact that they are theater makers who also ran a food bank and run so much community mm. uh, are so embedded in the community and what it really emphasizes to me is like you say we are not one note as human beings mm. even if you were in a dream job you wouldn't want just for that to be right you know it, what we really need as individuals in society is a balance between perhaps something that fulfills us creatively something that fulfills us intellectually something that fulfilled us fulfills us as communal beings you know it's a, it's a mix between service to the community you know pleasure for yourself and um using your best skills you know and it, it's such a con that people would should devote kind of 60 hours of one thing in this in the um service of money absolutely it's so funny because like my my parents, um, I don't know, yeah. but they're both, you know, conservative. Um, and when I was talking about the four day working week, they were kind of like, they were so against it. And I, I didn't really know why. And it's this kind of ideology, you said it earlier, that we all need to work all the time. And like, if you're not, you're doing something wrong. And it's like, but you would literally have one day off. Like, that's good. 
And they're like, oh, but you know, I, I don't want that. And it's just like, also that that work is the only thing that you cannot feel guilty about. That what? work is the only thing of value. When actually, like, community work is work. You know, volunteering is work. Care work is work. Mm. Caring responsibilities are work. If we're going to see them in that way, you know. Oh, and by work, I guess I'm saying are valuable. Are of value. Right. Right. Yeah. And also, like, I guess your proof of like reproductive labor as well. Right. Like in the suburbs, that's massive. Like I went, you know, when yeah. I, I door knocked and. Firstly, nobody would answer the door because they're all at work, which is annoying because I was trying to like, I'm trying to articulate this vision that we have where like maybe we wouldn't have to work all the time. We have to, <laughs> they're all at work. <laughs> so I can't yeah. tell. And the people that did open the door was basically predominantly mothers. Yeah. Right? So yeah. there's this deep gendered inequality in, in reproductive labour. But yeah. is labour, right? There's so many dimensions to this kind of thing. And, you know, just in terms of like intellectually, uh, I remember reading in Anna Minton's book, which I really loved, um, Ground Control, how secured by design makes people more paranoid, more frightened, and feel as if the world around them is worse and a prison. And similarly, like, and I'm sorry to my sister, but I doubt she listens to this. She's got a ring doorbell and not to judge her, but when she came to stay with me, every five minutes she was like, oh, my doorbell's gone off. Oh, somebody's at my door. And it, it makes you paranoid and questioning. It changes how you... It, 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 it puts a completely different space that if you didn't have this you wouldn't have those kind of thoughts and feelings and again it, that is the success of like I, I think I think like you were saying like individual privatized property yes yes exactly yeah these structures kind of exist to um convince us that they need to exist it's complete certain yeah. logic yeah like you say private property um we're so worried about like who is threatening our own personal private space. Mm. Um, and it's not like the Radio Dorbit isn't a neutral thing. It, it expands yes, your, yes, your private yes. property sphere to like basically wherever you can see. Um, and it, it, it really feeds on anxieties about human behavior. And, it's and just, also what you said about, it's not a neutral thing in terms of who owns it, who chooses right. to own it and where that could go. And, and I think that's such an important point about so much of politics is that again, the suburban mindset, the small C conservative mindset teaches you that so much is neutral and apolitical mm -hmm. and that so much is probably benign, actually, and that you're being, you know, a bit churlish to be challenging it, you know, when it's 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 simply important to like analyze power structures to analyze what tech companies are doing and who they're owned by and for what purpose, you know, and, and like um yeah this is another reason why i want to say to the listeners how much i really do recommend the book as well because i, I, I it feels so good to hear you know i'll be like oh i feel this and then you'll be like well of course this this and this you know and i think it's so important to have these books that are thorough and well researched and well written but that are are sort of explaining these things that are felt on a very clear level and understood on a level that is you know, not necessarily on an academic level, but but they're, because they're real, that is, you know, how things are. Yes. That's, well, that's really kind of you to say. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's good to hear that people do, you know, read it and think that's, that's me, that's my life. Mm. Like, I've thought this before. And as you say, like, one of the things that politicians and capitalism tries to do to us is stop us communicating and to realising that actually we all, we, we do have these similar conditions and we do have these similar thoughts and like we're not crazy um and like we're just being and the capitalism is unfulfilling unless you're i was gonna say unless you're elon musk but elon musk is the saddest man in the he fucking world so look at his twitter it's pathetic you know I, like I, that's why i think conservatives can react so angrily to people trying to do things differently is because deep down they know that the thing they've committed to is not that's making them happy so true and like it's also true for, I think, for people who aren't that well off. You know, I met yes. a lot of nurses uh, more kind of late in their careers, and they didn't like the idea of um, this abolishing the salary cap for new nurses. Um, and the reason why they said, well, I really struggled and I worked my way up. I invested in this either individualized aspiration and this ideology. So why should, um, if I've suffered, why should anybody else have, have it better than me? And it's a self... Um, um, justifying and self-perpetuating, which is just the most depressing thing. Because I'm like, this would literally benefit you as well. And it's like, yeah. it's yes. And I feel like there's a real dichotomy and it gives me some hope because I think there's two reactions to 
that struggle. There's people saying, I struggle, so why should why shouldn't they? Yeah. You know, well, I had a student debt and it's been awful, so they should have it. <laughs> and there's people saying, I struggled and I don't want you to struggle. You know, yeah. and there will always be people responding to that in, in both ways. Absolutely. And it's just a case of hoping that we can convince more people to um, be generous with it and to be wanting to alleviate it, not to replicate it. Yeah, of course. And it's like, as you say, it's, it, when you said earlier about the people just think things are neutral or these are things that this is how it is. That's why, again, we talk extra um, electoral action, like sorry, you know, action outside the electoral sphere. What it forces you to do when you when you strike, when you protest, kind of force people to recognise the ideological nature of their reality. This isn't neutral. You know, like when students went and uh, protested in, in Millbank in 2010, you know, every, they were called like feral mob and everything. But like what they were doing was showing that this action of like increasing tuition fees isn't an unavoidable or an inevitable thing. It's a political choice. And you know, showing such anger and collective dissent is so powerful for the long term. It's no coincidence that seven years later, the Labour Party wanted to abolish tuition fees. Because of this like anger that students presented, it had this massive kind of mobilisational impact. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what gives me hope, as you say, that like you can kind of think of it positively or pessimistically or optimistically. And it's like whether it will work or not, it's kind of not the question. It's just like we have to resist uh, especially with like the increasingly um, uninhabitable future that we're, that we're left with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, gosh, a few things, that made me think of a few things. Firstly, there's a, a quote that, of Greta Thunberg, uh, Greta Thunberg when she got interviewed, where she said, I don't care. They said, mm. how do you stay hopeful? And she said, I don't care yeah. if what we're doing is hopeful or not. We, even if there's no hope whatsoever, we have to do what we can. And it's sort of that feeling of like, I almost don't care about winning or losing that doesn't mean i don't want to win yeah. but what it means is like what else are you gonna do exactly. you know exactly what when else people, are you gonna do when people say like oh protests won't win people over or they're not going to persuade it's like sometimes we don't have to reduce collective action to you know its instrumental value for electoral politics or you know sometimes it's just like an urgent response a necessary response to uh the conditions around us um and yeah, moderate or pragmatists are always trying to think, yeah, how does how will this affect our chances in the next election? Um, and it's just annoying. <laughs> it's really annoying because some people, yeah, as you say, they don't have a choice. They need to fight back against the system, uh, particularly young people who are having their future taken away from them. And I get it. And I think it's it's partly for me growing up in a small C conservative place under, you know, Tony Blair sort of getting in when I was 14, yeah. this yeah. feeling of like, oh, we don't have to think about politics. We'll just mm. get the goodies in and we don't think about it. And thank God, you know, I get that it's such a shift to sort of reimagine society, which might reimagine a society which might be more participatory, where Absolutely. politics isn't just something you do once every five years and where you might need to be there for more decision making or action within your community. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect because that's basically what suburban socialism is, what it looks to do, which is, you know, democracy isn't just about political representatives mm. it's about the economy it's about mm. the workplace um, it's about our communities how can we all have a greater say in the things that affect our everyday lives um, rather than private companies deciding for us through the provision of energy and water and housing mm -hmm. and you know what the worst thing i think that blair did is actually like the ideological permanence like of the system so he he basically said he said to people we can only win this way mm -hmm. and like you know his success is actually kind of like it actually puts socialism back many decades because mm -hmm. it convinced people that the only way we can win or, or really the only society we can live in is neoliberal. You know, of course. And even when Labour made historic gains and were polling at 40% and got 12 and a half million votes, they would not build on it. They right. would not acknowledge yeah. it as legitimate. They yeah. would rather like, absolutely bunty it to court to fulfill those prophecies of uh unelectability then they would say okay this is something we can learn from in a positive way absolutely and it's really annoying because people just basically say you're either a book like you either say nine you point to 97 or you point to 2017 and it's just like to me we can't really point to either it's to say what mm -hmm. are the conditions that define our society now yes, and what yes. does it demand 
Yes. Like 2017 happens That's to be true. close to 97. <laughs> so like actually yeah. probably more to learn from that. And obviously what went wrong in 2019 and how can we learn lessons and don't learn the wrong lessons. Yeah. yeah. And the wrong lesson would be that the society that society is not ready for radical change or that mm-hmm. the North uh, just want like flags being waved. And want, it's just complete mm-hmm. shit. Because like you look at polling as well. The biggest support for like, the Green New Deal is actually in the quote red wall, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, this is where I come back to working class and like how people define working class wrongly. You know, class is a social relation and the Green New Deal is a anti-capitalist and a working class uh, movement. It's about having a just transition from private ownership that's killing our planet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to more systems of collective ownership that's more sustainable. And it just really annoys me when people co-opt language of class to justify really reactionary and ecocidal <laughs> policies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so God, that's a bit pessimistic, but... Um, <laughs> well, okay, well, I can bring something to counter that. The Green New Deal Rising Movement, wonderful, right. exciting, you know, young people putting themselves uh, out there in order to make themselves, you know, perhaps the targets of the right-wing media, perhaps the targets of right-wing uh, anti-imagination uh, cops, and yet there they are, and I see it growing all the time. Parents for Future, I see these organisations building mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. So like, yeah, I think it's not silly to acknowledge the lay of the land, but Absolutely. it's also always something to think, there's always so much going on. And you know, I think your book contributes to that and, and I think that's really great. And I really appreciate you talking to me and, and also I really appreciate you sort of heightening the um the register of the chat when i'm like yes yeah, like that and you're like yes it's like that. <laughs> so thanks. Oh, it's been really fun um yeah it's been so good to talk to you thanks really fun thanks for listening ollie's book is out now you can go and get yourself a copy of that you can pre-order robin's new book with the signed art cards from the shambles shop now as well patreon.com slash book shambles rate like subscribe on apple podcasts uh five stars and all the other places as well that wasn't really a sentence it was just a collection of uh things that you should do but you know what i mean i mean i hope you do by this point if you're a new listener that was probably very confusing but go to cosmicshambles.com and all will be explained i promise Back next week with another new episode. Until then, stay safe and take care. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.